0: Hello everybody and welcome into episode number 74 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today's big Bible question, how does Jesus teach us how to evangelize and interact with people through his conversation with a Samaritan woman? So welcome to the show. I want to point you to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. More and more people are going there and checking out the uh, show notes and getting stuff they might have missed on the show, I'll point you to that site, BibleReadingPodcast.com. There's like 140,000 or close to it words worth of articles there. I also want to encourage you to share the show on social media, share the episode, share a post from the Bible Reading Podcast, tell people about it, all that kind of good stuff. Our goal is to get people caught up reading the scripture on a daily basis, hearing the word of God on a daily basis. In these dark times, it's good to encourage people. Now, in order to give you a break from what literally everybody in the world is talking about, the only time I'm going to say the C word is right now, coronavirus. Check out yesterday's episode number 73 if that was not enough for you. Today's Bible readings include Exodus 25, the tabernacle, Proverbs 1, hey, what happened to the Psalms? Second Corinthians 13, Paul's farewell, and our focus passage, which is John chapter 4 which centers on Jesus talking with the woman at the well. Today's episode is probably going to be a short one because I've just finished writing and sending the longest email any pastor has ever sent to a church leadership team in the history of the world. If you're interested in reading it, I do plan to publish it in a special 25-volume collector's hardback edition after the current crisis abates, and you can have it for the low, low, low price of $299.99. But wait, there's actually, no, there's really not anymore. Let's uh, get started. Let's read John chapter four, and then we're going to come back and discuss it. John chapter 4, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had traveled through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well, and it was about noon. "'A woman of Samaria came to draw water. "'Give me a drink,' Jesus said to her, "'because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. "'How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, "'a Samaritan woman?' she asked him. "'For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. "'Jesus answered, "'If you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, "'Give me a drink,' you would ask him, "'and he would give you living water.' "'Sir,' said the woman, You don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep, so where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons in livestock. Jesus said, "'Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, "'but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him "'will never get thirsty again. "'In fact, the water I will give him "'will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life.' "'Sir,' the woman said to him, "'give me this water so that I won't get thirsty "'and have to come here to draw water. "'Go call your husband,' he told her, "'and come back here.' "'I don't have a husband,' she answered.' You correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said. For you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, "'Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews.' But an hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called the Christ. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then his disciples were arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you want? Or, Why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town and told the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, "'I have food to eat that you don't know about.' "'The disciples said to one another, "'Could someone have brought him something to eat?' My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to sow what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Now, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, "'He told me everything I ever did.' So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, "'We no longer believe because of what you said, since we've heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world.'" After two days he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his home country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they'd seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they had also gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. Jesus told him, "'Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe.'" "'Sir,' the official said to him, "'Come down before my boy dies.'" Go, Jesus told him. Your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, Your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. So that's a great passage and a fantastic Conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, or Jesus and the woman at the well. What can we learn as Christians from Jesus and his conversation and how he handled himself? What can we Christians learn about how to engage the culture, how to engage people that don't know Jesus, how to engage people that maybe are religious but not followers of Jesus? Well, I'm going to give us 10 tips here that are from the scripture that are very short that we learn from this episode. Number 1, engage. Don't just sit there even when it's awkward. As Jesus said in verse 7 and 8 of this passage, Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, if his disciples had gone into town to buy food. He started talking to her, even though it was unexpected. Now, I'll say this. You don't have to engage with everybody. Sometimes engaging deeply with just one or two or a few people is better than engaging superficially with everybody. Consider Jesus in the tomorrow's chapter, John 5, with the beggar at the pool of Bethesda. He did didn't heal everybody, he spent his time on the one person. Alright, principle number two the second lesson we can learn from Jesus and how to interact with people. We should be guided by biblical rules, not by human rules and traditions. For instance, the one woman asked him how that he, a Jew, would ask for a drink from her, a Samaritan woman. Obviously, that was kind of a forbidden thing, and even his disciples were amazed that that Jesus was talking to a woman and a foreign woman at that. But that's not a biblical command to not do that. Jesus wasn't doing anything wrong. That was a biblical, that was a non biblical rule and tradition. We don't have to follow those. For instance, Paul in Colossians 2 verse 20 says, If you died with the Messiah to the elemental forces of this world, why do you live as if you still belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations like don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? All these regulations refer to what is destroyed by being used up. They are commands and doctrines of men. Although these have a reputation of wisdom by promoting ascetic practices, humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. In other words, Paul is saying you don't have to obey those kind of rules. They're not spiritually helpful, and Jesus didn't do it. So, what is the Bible rule, for instance, about men talking with women? Is it forbidden? Should we avoid it? Well, I think. Paul gives Timothy some great advice in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older men, women as mothers, and with all propriety the younger women as sisters. So, should men and women keep their distance in the church? No, but they should treat, treat each other with propriety as you know, literal siblings, as mothers if the person is older. So that means with a great amount of respect, but also warmth and, clo- you know, real friendliness and engaging. All right, principle number three. This is pretty obvious, but still. Ignore racist traditions that aren't biblical. For the one, the woman said, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Well, again, that's not biblical. That's a human tradition. Let me give you another human tradition. Is interracial marriage okay? You bet it is. The Bible never condemns it. Now, the Bible does say that Christians should not be unequally yoked, and the Bible said that the Jews should not marry followers of other gods. So yes, interreligion marriage is forbidden in the scripture. Does that have anything to do with race? Not a bit. Can people of different races be married? Absolutely they can. Can people of different religions be married? No, the Bible says they shouldn't. That's a different sort of thing. The Bible says that that'll pull your heart away from God. So ignore racist traditions that aren't biblical. Number four, tip from Jesus how to interact with people. You don't have to use a canned opening. Like, just be like Jesus and be sort of natural. For for instance, in verse 10 of chapter 4, Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. You know, Jesus didn't use a cliche or a canned opening like, Let me ask you a question, Samaritan woman, if you died tonight, where would you go? I'm not saying that's the worst thing in the world, but, you know, it's probably better just to be natural. Jesus talked to the woman, and he brought up the good news quickly but also naturally. Number five, similarly, the gospel is not a memorized set of propositions. Almost every time in scripture when the good news of Jesus is shared, it is shared differently, not with the exact sort of cookie cutter type pattern, but every time it points back to Jesus. We need to remember that. Number six, be open to what some people call prophetic evangelism. Jesus told this woman, hey, go call your husband and then come let's talk. And she said, oh, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, oh, you know, that's right. You have had five husbands and the person you're with now is not your husband. How did Jesus know that? Well, it had to have been a word of prophecy This is spoken of by Paul in places like 1 Corinthians 14.23, which says, Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in other languages or tongues, and people who are uninformed or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or uninformed person comes in, he's convicted by all and judged by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. So what is Paul saying? I think he's pointing to the exact thing that Jesus just showed us, that the Spirit can reveal things to us that only the Spirit knows, and we can say them to people to open the door to share the gospel. Now, you might say, oh, come on, I don't believe in such things. I'm a cessationist. Well, I'm not, but I am a Southern Baptist, and I can think of another Baptist, Charles Spurgeon. He thought he was a cessationist, but I suggest that he engaged in several incidences like this. For instance, one time Spurgeon was preaching and he pointed to a person in the crowd or pointed out to the crowd and said, there's a man sitting here who's a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays and it was open the last Sabbath morning. In other words, he missed church he took in nine pence, and there was four pence profit on it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence. Now, this man was afraid to go and hear Spurgeon again for fear he might tell people more about him, because everything Spurgeon said down to the penny was true. But at last he came, the Lord met with him, and he was gloriously saved. How would Spurgeon know something like that? And the answer is the Spirit would have to reveal it to him. Another situation. Spurgeon pointed out the gallery again and said young man the gloves you have in your pocket are not paid for sure enough after the service the young man came and confessed what he'd done and he became a christian on the spot another time he pointed to the gallery or said to the gallery there's a man here listening who's so in the throes of alcohol he has a bottle of gin in his pocket and again there was such a man and that man was startled into conversion You might say some of those are coincidences. I think that they're a little bit too coincidental when you add them up. There's many more Spurgeon stories like that. But I think that's just an example of the Holy Spirit speaking through people. And if you're ministering to somebody, talking to somebody, be open to the Spirit leading you in that way. I think it's a very biblical thing to do. It's exactly what Jesus did, talked about in 1 Corinthians 14, and our brother Spurgeon did it. Number seven, it is rarely if ever necessary to condemn people at least not in a direct sort of overbearing way for instance in this ish, in this episode verse 17 G, uh, the woman said i don't have a husband and jesus said you've correctly said i don't have a husband for you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband what you've said is true Notice how Jesus didn't come down harshly on her. That was not the right way to live her life. Jesus knew it. But John 3.17, as we read yesterday, "...God did not send his Son into the world that he might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him." Luke 6.37, "...Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven." John 8.10. When Jesus stood up, he said to the woman who was caught in adultery, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Of course, you might be saying, now, hey, wait a minute, I thought that story, it's John 7.53 through 8.11, wasn't in the original New Testament. Well, good news, friends. That Episode called the Pericope Adultery. We're going to talk about that in the next few days. I believe it was in the original Gospel of John, but we'll have to wait a few days for that. Number eight thing we learned from Jesus about engaging with lost people and people like the Samaritan woman. While we don't want to condemn, It can be appropriate to deliver warnings. For instance, the passage we just talked about, the woman caught in adultery. Jesus said, go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. John 5.14, we'll read it tomorrow, talking to the paralyzed man. After this, Jesus found that man who was healed in the temple complex and said to him, see you're well, don't sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. That's pretty significant. Jesus seems to rarely begin with sin, unless he's dealing with hard-hearted religious leaders. The gospel comes first, but a warning is very appropriate, very biblical. Number nine, Jesus breaks down all dividing walls. Your words should too. Think about what he says in John 4, 21. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So Jesus is saying unifying things there. Finally, Number 10 thing we learned from Jesus about how to speak to people about the gospel is point people to Jesus. Jesus pointed this woman to himself. He said, I am he, the one speaking to you, the Messiah. Well, we don't say, I am he. We point to Jesus and say, it's him. He's the Savior. We point people to Jesus and we point people to the source of salvation, just like Jesus did. All right, let's get into some more Bible reading, this time with Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites to take an offering from me. You are to take my offering from everyone who is willing to give. This is the offering you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen and goat hair, ramskins, dyed red and fine leather, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense and onyx among along with other gemstones for mounting on the ephod and breastpiece. They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. You must make it according to all that I show you, the pattern of the tabernacle as well as the pattern of all its furnishings. They are to make an ark of acacia wood, 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold. Overlay it both inside and out. Also make a gold molding all around it. Cast four gold rings for it and place them on its four feet, two rings on one side and two on the other side. Make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark in order to carry the ark with them. The poles are to remain in the rings of the ark, they must not be removed from it. Put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. Make a mercy seat of pure gold, 45 inches long and 27 inches wide. Make two cherubim of gold. Make them of hammered work at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub of one end and one cherub at the other end. At its two ends, make the cherubim of one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim are to have wings spread out above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and are to face one another. The faces of the cherubim should be towards the mercy seat. Set the mercy seat on top of the ark and put the tablets of the testimony that I will give you into the ark. I will meet you with you there above the mercy seat between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony. I will speak with you from there about all that I command you regarding the Israelites. You are to construct a table of acacia wood, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 27 inches high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding all around it. Make a three-inch frame all around it and make gold molding for it all around its frame. Make four gold rings for it and attach the rings to the four corners at its four legs. The rings should be next to the frame as holders for the poles to carry the table. Make the poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold, and the table can be carried by them. You are also to make its plates and cups, as well as its pitchers and bowls for pouring drink offerings. Make them out of pure gold. But the bread of the presence on the table before me at all times. You are to make a lampstand out of pure hammered gold. It is to be made of one piece, its base and shaft, its ornamental cups and its buds and petals. Six branches are to extend from its side, three branches of the lampstand from one side, and three branches of the lampstand from the other side. There are to be three cups shaped like almond blossoms, each with a bud and petals one on one branch, and three cups shaped like almond branches, each with a bud and petals on the next branch. It is to be this way for the six branches that extend from the lampstand. There are to be four cups shaped like almond blossoms on the lampstand shaft, along with its buds and petals. For the six branches that extend from the lampstand, a bud must be under the first pair of branches from it, a bud under the second pair of branches from it, and a bud under the third pair of branches from it. Their buds and branches are to be of one piece. All of it is to be a single hammered piece of pure gold make it seven lamps and set them up so that they illuminate the area in front of it its snuffers and firepans must be of pure gold the lampstand with all these utensils is to be made from 75 pounds of pure gold be careful to make them according to the pattern you have been shown on the mountain proverbs chapter 1 verse 1 the proverbs of solomon son of david king of israel for learning wisdom and discipline For understanding insightful sayings. For receiving prudent instruction in righteousness, justice, and integrity. For teaching shrewdness to the inexperienced, knowledge, and discretion to a young man. Let a wise person listen and increase learning. And let a discerning person obtain guidance. For understanding a proverb or a parable, the words of the wise and their riddles, the fear of the Lord, is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and don't reject your mother's teaching— For they will be a garland of favor on your head, and pendants around your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, don't be persuaded. If they say, come with us, let's set an ambush and kill someone. Let's attack some innocent person just for fun. Let's swallow them alive, like Sheol, whole like those who go down to the pit. We'll find all kinds of valuable property and fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot with us and we'll share all the loot. My son, don't travel that road with them or set foot on their path because their feet turn towards evil, and they hurry to shed blood. It's useless to spread a net where any bird can see it, but they set an ambush to kill themselves. They attack their own lives. Such are the paths of all who make profit dishonestly. It takes the lives of those who receive it. Wisdom calls out in the street. She makes her voice heard in the public squares. She cries out above the commotion. She speaks at the entrance of the city gates. How long, inexperienced ones, will you love ignorance? How long will you mockers enjoy mocking? And you fools hate knowledge. If you respond to my warning, then I will pour out my spirit on you and teach you my words. Since I called out and you refused, extended my hand and no one paid attention, since you neglected all my counsel and did not accept my correction. I, in turn, will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when trouble and stress overcome you. Then they will call me, but I won't answer. They will search for me, but won't find me, because they hated knowledge, didn't choose to fear the Lord, were not interested in my counsel, and rejected all my correction. They will eat the fruit of their way and be glutted with their own schemes. For the apostles, of the inexperienced will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live securely and be undisturbed by the dread of danger. Second Corinthians 13 verse 1. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I gave a warning when I was present the second time, and now I give a warning while I am absent to those who sinned before and to all the rest. If I come again, I will not be lenient, since you seek proof of Christ speaking in me." He is not weak in dealing with you, but powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by God's power test yourselves to see if you are in the faith examine yourselves or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail the test and i hope you will recognize that we ourselves do not fail the test but we pray to god that you do nothing wrong not that we may appear to pass the test but that you may do what is right even though we may appear to fail for we can't do anything against the truth but only for the truth we rejoice when we are weak and you are strong we also Also pray that you become fully mature. This is why I am writing these things while absent, so that when I am there, I may not have to deal harshly with you in keeping with the authority the Lord gave me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Become mature, be encouraged, be of the same mind, be at peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints send you greeting. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And you know what? I cannot think of a better way to end than that, so I'm just going to read it one more time. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.